deals in money, we are constantly seeking deals in money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Be persistent, but also just keep grinding it out. People that get into real estate, they have this understanding or this thought that, hey, I'm going to get rich and I'm going to get rich quickly. Or I see people that I aspire to be and I can quickly get there. Just be patient, but be persistent. Best ever listeners, I'm excited to introduce you to our newest host that we're bringing on to the team. His name is Slocum Reed, along with myself and Ash. Slocum will be providing value to every interview he does. I've known Slocum for years and I've watched his portfolio continue to grow. He currently owns and operates 65 units, including converting three units into an office building. So he's an owner operator. He's coming from certainly a different perspective than I have. I know he's going to bring his expertise and cut through the fluff and get the best real estate investing advice ever for you. So welcome, Slocum Reed. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Ben Suttles. Ben is joining us from Houston, Texas. He's an apartment syndicator with Disrupt Equity. They have over $200 million in assets under management with 2,000 units across Texas and Georgia. He's also an LP in 2,500 units. Ben, can you start us off with a little more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Well, thanks, local man. I really appreciate the invite. Hopefully, I can add some value to your listeners today. So a little bit about my background. I come from IT sales. So everybody's going to be like, how did you get into multifamily syndication? But I'll, I'll tell the little story here. So as a lot of people that you're probably listening have read a little bit of a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I did the same thing in 2012. It was a light bulb moment. I said at that point, hey, I need to get into real estate. So not knowing anything about multifamily, everybody kind of knows about single family, rentals, flipping, kind of the stuff that you see on HGTV. So I got into that in 2012 and 13 and did that for a couple of years here in Houston, where I'm from. 
but as some folks kind of realize after a couple of years of being a landlord on your own, flipping houses sure. on your own, I lost the remainder of my hair and I was looking for something different, right? I love real estate. I love building legacy wealth for my daughter and ultimately looking to try to get out of the rat race as soon as possible too. So I started looking into commercial real estate and within commercial real estate, I found out about multifamily. So in 2015, joined a group, learned how to do it, learned how to raise money, found out that my skill set as a sales guy was a good segue into raising capital and doing presentations and pitching deals. So I kind of took off from there. So did my first deal in 2015, did another deal the next year. And then from there, I said, hey, you know, I really want to scale this out, but I'm lacking some of the things that I need in order to scale. So I started actively looking to identify a potential partner. And in 2017, I met a gentleman named Ferris Musa. He came from IT as well. He wasn't on the sales side. He was kind of on the development side, but he had some of those skills that I was lacking. And I'm a big proponent of one plus one equals three. So it was a good symbiotic relationship. So in 2017, we created Disrupt Equity. So Disrupt Equity after that kind of went on a tear for the next few years, bought a bunch of deals, then obviously COVID hits, right? But we're back onto it now. We've got some pretty ambitious goals in 2022. Look forward to kind of getting back into the swing of things. We sold about five deals last year and hopefully we can continue to grow in the multifamily space. Awesome. So within your partnership with Ferris at Disrupt, what do you focus on? What's your specialty? I'd say it's raising money, acquisitions, and then ultimately on the back end, I do the asset management side. So Ferris helps with a back office, IT, also the property management side of our business. We have our own property management company and that in itself is its own job. So we've kind of divided of Parker, and again, it's worked out fairly well because his skill set does well over there. And this is kind of where I thrive. And it ultimately is what we enjoy to do too. But I'd say day to day, main part of my day is going to be the acquisitions, which is talking with brokers, identifying opportunities and working with our underwriting team. And then the flip side of that, the other four hours, actually probably six or seven hours of my day is going to be the asset management side of our business and just kind of managing our current portfolio and making sure that we're hitting the business plan that we're trying to hit. So are you doing all of the asset management yourself for the whole portfolio? No, we've since hired on a couple of folks that actually do the day-to-day and I'm just managing them. I think as you grow a company, you step back from doing the doing to managing the people that are of doing course. it. So it's been a little bit of a paradigm shift for both me and Ferris, because at the beginning you're doing everything. And then you start delegating and carving out little pieces. And then you wake up one day, 80% of that is somebody else. And now you have to manage them and make sure that they're doing it in the ways that it needs to be done and keeping them accountable and keeping everybody trending towards the same goals and managing people and their time. And sometimes in, in some cases, their challenges. So bottom line, yeah, I manage the asset management team, I guess is probably a better way to describe it. Gotcha. Yep. I was going to ask with 2000 doors and 200 million in assets, how you're doing all of the asset management. No, yourself, no, 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 but... no, I don't, it would be very difficult. And I, I think if I was to do that, I would never have any time to buy anything else because you're constantly blinders on trying to focus on making sure that your current portfolio is performing well. You don't have time to go develop relationships with brokers or underwrite additional deals or make offers because you're so bombed doing that. And actually, it's, it's a good point that you bring up asset management because our first hire at Disrupt Equity was an asset manager because I identified that as just a really, I'm not saying time suck because that's kind of a neg- it has a really negative connotation, but it was just not the highest and best use of the time that I felt like I needed. 
to use. So I wanted to focus more on the acquisitions. So the first person I did was hire an asset manager. And it was one of the best decisions that I've ever made. So a lot of time was spent in asset management. Do you guys have property management in-house? We do. And we do first party and third party. So that's been its own set of challenges. But yeah, we do have our own property management company. It's called Disrupt Management. We started that in 2019, actually Q4 of 2019. And everybody knows what happened three or four months later. So right. it was a blessing and it was a little bit of a curse, right? You know, obviously bad timing, but I'm actually glad that we took over our whole entire portfolio at the time that we did because it allowed us to have that transparency and allowed us to pivot because all of those things, I would have cringed to have a third-party company trying to manage our assets during COVID because things were shifting week to week. Nobody knew what was going to happen, what were the rules and regulations. And it was really nice to have our own in-house management where we could say, hey, no, we got to do it this way. And boom, it gets done that way versus trying to go back to one of the big property management companies and say, no, I want you to manage my assets this way. doesn't work like that, right? They've got their own box and I understand why they do it, right? They're big and they have to slam everybody in there in order to be able to manage it all. But it makes it difficult when you want them to pivot or be nimble when challenging times pop up. So it was a blessing in that respect when COVID popped up because we could pivot when we needed to. Yeah, you know, I do a lot of direct-to-seller lead generation here in Cincinnati. And the conversations that I was having with owners in 2020, there was a direct correlation between how close the owner of the property was to the tenant and how well their property performed in early 2020. The owner operators, people like me, I didn't have any collections issues March, April, May, June, 2020, Mm -hmm. because the moment the shelter in place order was announced in 2020, I've said this on the podcast before, but the moment the shelter in place order was announced, I had a plan and I reached out to all of my tenants and said, Hey, if you experience any financial hardship, I have plans to help you through, please connect with me. Mm -hmm. And several of them did on the other side of that spectrum, though, the people in Cincinnati, who's properties aren't local, the owner's not local, and they hired a big box third-party manager, like you were saying, who has to fit everyone into the way that they do things. Those are the people who really suffered. Those were the tenants who took advantage of the opportunity to not pay rent and not get evicted. The further the owner of the property was from the tenant, if they weren't here locally and they were relying on a third-party manager and they were relying on the wrong third-party manager. Those are the people whose collections absolutely plummeted. Oh, absolutely. Um, So to your point, yeah, I bet it was. I don't know how much time you spent comparing yourself to other operators in the space, but getting yourself that close to the tenant right before a serious macro level event happened, I'm sure that did help with your operations. And and I I also say we were able to control the messaging that went back to the tenants too. And I think in a lot of ways, That's also challenging because for people that are trying to filter, hey, I want you to say this, or I want you to direct them to go here, that can be tough when you're trying to do that through a third-party company too. So once we got our hands around what was happening with COVID, I think at the end of the day, it was always nice to say, okay, hey, we just found out about this new rule or this new whatever mandate. 
let's send out a letter and say, hey, this is how we're going to handle it. These are who you need to talk to. We provided a, like almost like a Wikipedia page to all of our tenants with all the different links to all the different resources within their specific submarket. And people, man, they really ate that up. They really appreciated that because we took all the guesswork out of it. Hey, if you're having challenging times, you need to go here. Or if you need this, you need to go here. If you need this, you need to go here. We curated the page for actually all of 2020. We finally took it down, I think, in Q1 2021. But that was where we were pushing everybody. And we had essentially figured out all their resources and how to help them. And people like that. And I think that that's important. I think even in normal times, just communicating with people. I think in a lot of ways, people, if you try to wall yourself off and kind of be all rigid, it's hard to work a solution. But if you kind of come to people and say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Ultimately, we want you to stay at the property and we know that's been challenging, but here's some solutions. And we're doing that even to this day as kind of eviction courts are starting to open up. We've found ourselves kind of working out deals with folks, trying to get them back into paying rent and how does that work? And hey, if we waive this, let's get you back on track, right? You don't want to have that that eviction, that scarlet letter on your record. So how do we make this work? And it's really been successful. If you start kind of really working with people and kind of talking to them, a lot of people have come in out of the cold and said, okay, here, here's what I can pay. What can you do to work with me? And it's been very, very successful this year. And so we're going to continue to do that too, because there's been some submarkets, Atlanta being a one of them that is still trying to get their act together as far as eviction courts. And what they're telling people is that, hey, I'm starting from March, 2020, and I'm working my way all the way to where it is now. So They're two years behind, man. And some of these are still not fully open. And if they are, they're again, they're starting March, 2020 and they're working their way through. You can imagine what kind of a backlog they have. It's crazy. Ben, you're in a breadth of markets, at least in Texas and Georgia, but I know you said before we started recording that you're also looking at Columbus. Yep. Quick question. As involved as you guys are in day-to-day operations, how much is the way that COVID was handled in a market with shelter in place, mass requirements, eviction moratoriums. How much is that playing into your decision about whether or not you want to enter a market right now? Huge. It's huge because we love Atlanta as a market, but man, they muck the whole thing up, man. And I would say for the most part, in normal times, Georgia was fairly pro-landlord. But it went almost completely to the other side of the spectrum when COVID hit, and they just didn't really work with us. They made it very challenging to get rental relief through because as people maybe that don't realize this, right? So you have federal funding, went down to the state level. State level then goes down to the local level. They pushed it down to the local administrations. Now, there were some statewide programs in certain states, but in some locations, especially in Atlanta, it was administered by the counties. And each county had its own set of rules and regulations. And if anybody knows anything about Atlanta, that's made up of seven different counties. So we had to deal with four different ones and each one of them were extremely challenging. So it has made us kind of pause acquisitions in Atlanta because not only do we know we've, there's huge delinquency problems because they haven't been able to evict anybody, even to this day. We're also just kind of have a little bit of a sour taste in our mouths, I'd say from how we were just kind of treated as landlords by the local administration. And I know that obviously stuff happened in this. I'm not trying to politicize anything, right? There was other states and other locations that handled it a lot more effectively. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. We'll still ultimately go after deals in Atlanta if it makes sense. But I'm certainly going to be a little bit more cautious on my underwriting 
of deals in certain markets because of what happened during COVID. Ben, it sounds like you guys have taken a lot of deals full cycle already. I think you said you sold five properties last year. Yep. Tell us about the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome specific to a particular deal you took full cycle. Another Atlanta deal. This deal was challenging from the beginning. It was in what I'm going to call a transitioning market. You read into that statement, however anybody wants to read into it. Uh, South Atlanta, yeah. anybody that knows anything about Atlanta, there's, it's, South Atlanta is different than North Atlanta. We've done very, very well down there, but you just have to realize what you're getting yourselves into. Well, this property had every challenge that you could possibly have. It had down units. It had crime. It had deferred maintenance. We bought it from a slumlord that did nothing but put band-aids over just gaping wounds on the property. It had tenants that were criminals and everything else, right? So I would say the most challenging deal that we ever had was that one. So we bought it on paper. It was at 80% occupied. Of that 80%, only 30% were actually paying rent. So Physical occupancy of, of 80%, economic occupancy 30%. Yes. Yeah. So we weren't making a lot of money. So we were bleeding money from day one. We took physical occupancy down to 35%. You can now imagine that we are really hemorrhaging money. Then we had to do all the work and upgrade the property and then release it back up. All of this takes a good 18 months. And at the end of the day, it ended up being all right. But we had challenges from the lender. The lender tried to blow the deal up because they're one of these kind of loan to own bridge lenders that I'm not going to mention anybody's gotcha. name. They were very, very challenging. They held up draws and they would give us approvals on stuff and then kind of come back and renege and say, oh, no, actually, you can't do that. There was every challenge in the book. We had a lot of criminal problems and that created some challenges when you went to go try to sell the property too. There was news articles and all kinds of stuff. And so that was probably our most challenging deal. Now it ended up being profitable. I've never lost money on any of the multifamily properties that I've had. Now, the one time that I have lost money is COVID, March, 2020, me and Ferris get a deal under contract here in Texas. And this was before the 15 days to stop the spread or whatever it was called. Early March, we had already done our due diligence. We went to go do the capital raise and they shut the economy down. So we're like, okay, debt's going to dry up. Equity's going to dry up. How can we physically get this deal across the finish line? So we went back to the seller who had said, I'm just going to probably refinance. We'll work something out. Yeah, I'll give you your earnest money back. Well, once we made it official, then everybody starts clamming up. And the guy didn't want to give us our earnest money back. Well, we ended up having to sue him to get it back. And we took it all the way into arbitration. And it took a good 18 months to finally get our earnest money. And we didn't get it all back because you have to factor in the fact that I paid $50,000 for a lawyer to go chase after the earnest money that I had. How much was the earnest money? It was quite a bit. I think it was $250,000. So So you got 80% of it back. Yeah, we got some, but that was the only time where I feel like we somewhat miscalculated it. And the lesson that we learned from that deal was get everything in writing because this guy verbatim over the phone told us that he would give us our money back and then reneged on it. And it was essentially, you go back to the lawyer and say, Hey, well, this guy told us that unfortunately it's unenforceable. A verbal agreement in most States, certainly not in Texas, it's just not enforceable. So that was a hard pill to swallow because on top of that COVID hits and our acquisition pipeline essentially evaporated overnight. So we didn't have any deals selling. We didn't have any deals buying. Ultimately, we had our current deals, but obviously those were all slowing down because we were still trying to get people to actually just pay rent. So it was kind of a double whammy for us. But that's probably the one time where I was just like, 
man, we probably could have done some things a little bit differently on that one. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. What's holding you back from getting into apartment building deals? Is it knowledge, fear, inability to take action, lack of support? If it's any of these things, then I suggest you consider Deal Maker Mentoring with Michael Blanc. Michael's program is the most effective program to help you syndicate your first apartment building deal. During Deal Maker Mentoring, you'll work directly with one of Michael's experienced mentors who have successfully replaced their income with apartment buildings. They've already done what you want to do, which is become financially free. So in addition to providing their own syndication experience, They've been trained in Michael's unique deal maker blueprint designed to help you do your first deal and become financially free just like them in the next one to three years. To find out more, text the word Joe to 66866. I know Michael's going to get you to where you'd like to be. Again, text the word Joe to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind, and let's get you started with your own syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Ben, going back to the Atlanta deal that you ended up buying with only 30% economic occupancy, you made money. It was much more of a lift than you expected. Where are the lessons learned in that deal? Going back, were there any red flags that you just didn't recognize up front? Or is there anything that you recognize now that you would have done differently at the onset? Yeah, there's a big, big lesson to be learned. And yeah, I had red flags going off in my head, but on paper it looked very, very strong. I had young guys, probably some hubris involved where I'm like, I can make this work. I can do this. I can make this profitable. But I'd say the biggest red flag, not red flag, but I guess lesson learned is who you buy a deal from. I think people discount that. If you're buying from an institutional person versus some slumlord, guess what? The institutional person is going to take care of the asset. The slumlord's not. So you need to realize whatever CapEx budget you have, and if you're buying from a slumlord, go ahead and double it. Because there's going to be all kinds of skeletons in the closet when it comes to the deal, because there's just going to be a ton more deferred maintenance, or there's going to be things that are going to be uncovered once you take over the property and find out that this guy or this gal hadn't done anything. So we had gotten the sense that this was who that person was just based on the conversation that we're having with the broker. And that should have been a huge red flag, right? But again, we're trying to get into a new market first asset in that new market, we were willing to kind of roll the dice a little bit. So that was red flag number one. I'd say red flag number two is- And before we go to red flag number two, slumlord is a very triggering term in our industry. It's even more triggering out of our industry. So I want to give you the opportunity to put some definition behind that. What is it that you mean when you say slumlord and how can people who are underwriting deals, analyzing deals- identify a bad owner operator who's leaving a property in very bad condition. 
an apology. I'm certainly not trying to. to, Oh, I'm not. I'm not saying that you did anything wrong. It's it's a very broadly used term that I want to put some details behind what you mean when you say that. So what I consider a slumlord, here's a more positive way, a low cost operator. Low cost operators. <laughs> you've gone too far in the wrong direction now. You know, so no, <laughs> yeah. These people don't put any money into the project. That is the, yeah. the definition of they are there to just squeeze as much juice out of it without putting a dime into the property. That is not what we do at Disrupt Equity. We put money into our properties because we're trying to create value and create a better community for our tenants. We look at it from an abundance mindset versus the scarcity mindset. And we knew that doing the due diligence and again, talking with the broker and just how these guys operated and just pick up on these details that they're trying to kind of drop on you because they don't want to be perceived as not telling you about something. We also had another deal in Texas that was the same thing. The person had owned it for 10 years, had not really put any money into it. And I would say that was the second most challenging deal. So the lesson again that we've learned is you really have to know who you're buying from. And the other thing too, is you have to have some kind of audited, not necessarily audited financials, but do some due diligence on the financials too, because in a lot of ways, these people that are kind of mom and pop, low cost operators, their books are either going to just be very, very sloppy or they're downright fraudulent. And in this case, it really was. And yeah, people are saying, why didn't you sue them? Because at the end of the day, it's buyer beware. You have to do your own due diligence up front, folks, or you can't necessarily blame the guy. Now, if there was some clear cut fraud that I could tie back easily and not have to spend a hundred grand to go chase them with. That could be one thing, but we said, Hey, we're just going to roll with it. We got enough money, enough capital to put into the project. We're going to make it work. So that's what I mean when I say that term, it's just people that don't put any money into it. And all they're trying to do is take money out. I will always stand behind the belief that treating people with dignity and respect is the most profitable way to operate any business. It sounds like you agree. And it sounds like this is a property and it sounds like you've bought a couple properties from people who did not operate that way. They just wanted money in with no money out. They let the place fall into disrepair because they knew there would still be someone who was desperate who needed to rent from them. And even if it was below market rent, hey, they have no expenses because they're not fixing anything. So why not just take below market rent from someone who's desperate? And a lot of these guys' basis, we bought this deal in Atlanta. People are probably going to cringe because anybody that's looking at Atlanta, they're going to say, whoa, what? These guys bought it at 10000 a door. The deal that bought in Texas was bought in 2008. Everybody knows what was happening in 2008. Those guys bought it at the yeah. bottom of the market. So their basis is low. They're still probably cash flowing, to be honest with you, because their basis yep. is so low. So they have no real incentive to push it at all. Other than treating people with dignity and respect. Well, that's just the types of folks that they were, right? But my point is, is that there was no financial incentive for them to push it either. Not to mention just the type of person that they are. But yeah, we live in an abundance mindset where, hey, if you put money in, you're going to create money. And if you create a community, you're going to not only have less turnover, but you're going to attract the right tenants that want to live in a community that's safe, that has quality and clean housing. And that's important. People need to realize that if you look at it through that lens, that you will still make money, but you will also be doing good for the community because all ships rise with the tide. If you're coming in and you're the first person on the block, you're the trailblazer that's going to dump 10,000 a door into your community and you're just going to completely revolutionize it and you're going to start pushing rents. Guess what? The guy next door is going to say, man, in order to compete, I either got to refi and pull some money out and put some money back in this thing, or I got to sell. And the next guy that buys it from him 
is going to do the same thing because he's going to say, well, hey, Ben and Ferris are doing a great job. I got to put 10000 a door into my deal too. Guess what? All ships rise with the tide, folks. So I've seen whole communities transform just by what we can do. So it's, it's an incredible thing to see. And the same thing can happen in single family too. And don't think of it in terms of gentrification or something negative, right? You're just trying to lift the community up by improving the housing that's in there. And that's what we try to do and try to look at it through that lens. Ben, I distracted you from lesson two on the Atlanta deal. <laughs> what was lesson two? Oh, I would say, okay, yeah, lesson two. So we get through, we're bought it, we're under contract, right? Other big red flag. And this is, people are going to say, this is like blaring, right? So we're on the property doing due diligence. Within the first five minutes, I saw a drug deal go down. But I was like, okay, we're just going to- This is after you bought it? No, we're under contract. We're doing our onsite DD, right? Due diligence, you know, gotcha. unit unit walks. So I see a drug deal go down. I'm like, cringe, not great, but we're going to identify these people and we're going to have security from day one and we're going to get them out, right? But as we're walking through the community, there was not once, but twice where there was people that literally threw trash out of the balcony onto the ground right in front of us. And the big red flag there is they didn't have any sense of community. They didn't care because they felt like the landlord didn't care. So it really wasn't their home. It was just a flop house. So who cares? They don't care about me. I'm just going to throw the trash on the ground. And I knew right there that we needed to just retenant the whole entire place because it was just going to be too challenging of a property. But that was probably a big red flag that, hey, we're going to have to do some thinning of the herd a little bit on the, the occupancy. And we did. Again, we took it from 80% on paper down to, I think, 35. But that was a big red flag. When you see crime, when you see people not taking care of the community, you know you're going to have some challenging times and you're going to have to retenant that property. And people don't take that into consideration that there could be a fair amount of turnover year one to the point where we turned over the whole entire property in less than 12 months. I think we turned it over in six months was what we did. Either people just skipped in the middle of the night, they were evicted or natural attrition, they just moved out. So you need to take that into consideration. That was a big red flag for us. Ben, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome. What is your best ever way to give back? We have a charity. It's called Disrupt Gives. It provides financial literacy and education to our tenants. And it's an actual charity. And we do this every year where we put money in as part of our asset management fee that we take on the property, as well as have events where we can raise money and dump it back in. But we do that. And that's the way that we give back. But I also big on charitable organizations. And I love giving back at Houston Food Bank and some other organizations that we're a part of as well. What is the best ever book you've recently read? I'd say we're getting into EOS, so Entrepreneur Operating System. So I just recently read Traction about three months ago. I wish I had something a little bit more recent, but I've been a little bit busy the last few months. But I'd encourage anybody that's really trying to scale out a business or build a business, or maybe you've already built a business and you just feel like you're in a rut, look into EOS. I think it's revolutionized how we've been able to scale our business and how we've been able to operate. You know, I encourage everybody to at least read the book. I think it's Gino Wickman, Wickman. Is, is the author on that one. Ben, what is your best ever advice? I'd say be persistent, but also just keep grinding it out. People that get into real estate, they have this understanding or this thought that, hey, I'm going to get rich and I'm going to get rich quickly. Or I see people that I aspire to be and I can quickly get there. Just be patient, but be persistent. Because I think that that last day where you're just about ready just to hang it up and just say, you know what, I'm done with this. I haven't found a deal or 
The deals that I have done haven't been profitable. It's that last day that if you just continue to grind it out, you're going to see a lot of progress and you're actually going to hit one. And I just tell people because I've seen people that three months in, oh, the market's too hot. It's too expensive. There's, it's just too competitive. And day 91 kept grinding it out. They might have found a deal. But instead, they just hang up their cleats and they say, all right, I'm done. So be patient, be persistent. And I'll tell you, the, the profits and the, and the money will come. You just have to continue to keep grinding it out. Absolutely. Ben, where can people get in touch with you? You can check us out, www.disruptequity.com, or you can email me directly. I like to talk shop, as people can kind of probably tell. Ben at disruptequity.com as well. Awesome. Well, best ever listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you've gotten value from this episode, please do subscribe to the show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend who could gain some value out of the conversation we just had with Ben Suttles. Thank you and have a best ever day.